for a scripture reading. Luke 20, starting with verse 20. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose image and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her, and in the same way, seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die for they that like the angels. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher. And no one dared to ask him any more questions. March 17th, uh, the middle of the 400s, St. Patrick died. And uh, Patrick's uh, life uh, well illustrates this scripture passage. It says this, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. And uh, there are things lacking in the afflictions of Christ, not for our salvation, but for the spread of the gospel. And uh, so we take these afflictions, and that's how we fulfill what is missing on what Christ did for the church, we have to suffer to take the gospel to other people. In uh, St. Patrick, Patrick was born uh, somewhere close to the border of England and Scotland. At the age of uh, 16, he was kidnapped by the Irish, and he was made a servant, and he was a slave. And for six years in Ireland, he was a slave, and he was looking after... Uh, the flocks, uh, the sheep of a druid. And uh, after six years, he was close to the coast and he saw a ship and he asked to get on the ship to flee back to, uh, back to England. And the steersman said, no, I'm not going to take you. And so he walked away. He prayed to the Lord. And then someone said from the ship, hurry, run. And he ran and got on the ship and uh, got back to England. Uh, he had given his life to Christ, 
uh, as a young boy when he was a slave. Grew up as a Christian. Father was a deacon in the church. Grandfather was a priest. And, uh, but he was not a Christian until he was a slave there in Ireland and he gave his life to Christ. Became a priest himself. And until the age of 48, he was a priest. And uh, that was about uh, the, 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 uh, the lifespan that you would expect to live in your mid-40s. And at the age of 48, he had a vision. And in the vision, it was someone from Ireland and, and a chorus of voices saying, Come, come to us. And he felt it was the call of God on his life. So he went back to Ireland, and uh, spectacular things happened. Uh, it was said he baptized 120,000 120, people. Uh, phenomenal. And uh, he died in Ireland. We have uh, supposedly two writings that survive from his hand. One is a biography, and it's, about, it's, it's, it's a book of about 50 paragraphs. And I'm going to read you a paragraph in a second. We have another letter that he wrote, and he wrote a letter back to someone in England who was enslaving Irish, and they were enslaving some of the Irish that he had actually baptized. And so he wrote the letter and said, I don't think as a Christian you should be enslaving fellow Christians. Um, anyways, this is, uh, this is what he wrote. This is his theology. And this comes from paragraph 4 of his biography. There is no other God, nor ever was before, nor shall be hereafter, but God the Father, unbegotten and without beginning, in whom all things began, whose are all things as we have been taught, and his Son Jesus Christ, who manifestly always existed with the Father before the beginning of time, in the Spirit with the Father, indescribably gotten before all things, and all things visible and invisible were made by him. He was made man, conquered death, and was received into heaven to the Father, who gave him all power over every name in heaven and on earth and in hell, so that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and God, in whom we believe. And we look to his imminent coming again, the judge of the living and the dead, who will render to each according to his deeds. And he poured out his Holy Spirit on us in abundance, the gift and pledge of immortality, which makes the believers and the obedient into sons of God, co-heirs of Christ who is revealed. And we worship one God in the Trinity of holy name. Well, that's quite a statement of theology from Patrick. Um, the verse that I read, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Six years of enslavement is what it took so that he knew the Irish language so that when he went to Ireland, he spoke their language, he knew their culture, he loved the people even though he had enslaved them. And that made all the difference in his presentation of the gospel. And of course, when he went to Ireland, he was not well received by everyone. 
he was imprisoned by the Druids again when he went to Ireland. But uh, the Lord's work was done, and uh, he's one of the great missionaries in the history of the church. Uh, did a phenomenal job, a ph- phenomenal follower of Christ, and uh, I wish I wish that's we I wish that's how we celebrated him. <laughs> uh, most people will celebrate St. Patrick today by wearing green uh, and uh, eating Irish food and drinking. Um, I wish we were celebrating his Lord and his Savior. That would be a better way to honor him. Well, this does relate to our, our text today. As Jesus Christ entered the uh, city of Jerusalem, triumphal entry, he went to the temple. And there he cleaned the temple and he overturned the tables and he drove out the flocks, overturned the tables of the money changers and those who were selling doves and uh, created quite uh, a lot of mayhem and chaos. And uh, the religious leaders came to him and said, by whose authority are you doing these things? And he said, well, let me ask you a question. John's baptism, is it from heaven or is it from men? They were afraid to answer. They knew they were caught, and so they said, we don't know. So he said, I won't tell you by whose authority I am doing these things. And then he proceeds to tell them who, by which authority he's doing those things. And uh, we're going to look at that today. We're going to end up by seeing that uh, he's given that authority by God. And uh, that's why St. Patrick goes to Ireland. He's under authority. And he's following the Lord. And that's why he gives his life. Um, if you look with me at Luke chapter 20 and verse 20. Passages in your bulletin. Keeping a close watch on them, they sent spies who pretended to be honest. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So uh, you, see, you see where they're coming from. As far as they're concerned, the person with authority is the Romans. And we want to catch Jesus so that we can hand him over to the Romans, and the Romans will finish him off. So the spies question him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right, and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Another gospel tells us that this is the Herodians and the Pharisees coming together. The Herodians are those who believe cooperation with Rome is what we should be doing. It's the way to prosperity. That's what we should, that's what we should do. Full cooperation with Rome. It's the best way to live. The Pharisees, the other group, they tend to be very strict followers of the law. Of course, they don't think cooperation is a good thing. We're just doing it because we have to do it. Notice the insincerity. They want Jesus to come out against Caesar, which secretly the Pharisees think, we wish we could do that. They want Jesus to come out against Caesar so that they can hand him over to Caesar. And I said, verse 21 is all lies. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right. Jesus should have said, now stop right there. Why aren't you following me? (laughs) Why aren't you doing what I'm saying? 
Why haven't you been baptized? Why haven't you followed John? They don't, they don't believe he's speaking and teaching what is right. Otherwise, they would follow him. They would love him. Um, by the way, I hear this kind of stuff all the time today. We love Jesus. We believe in Jesus. We just don't like church people. Have you heard that? <laughs> Am I the only one that hears that? <laughs> we love Jesus. We just don't like the church. <laughs> no, you don't. You don't love Jesus. <laughs> Otherwise, you love the people he dies for. Right? You love the, you love, you love the people that, that he's trying to purify by dying on the cross. Um, all lies, a facade. Uh, notice the question. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And there are many problems with paying taxes to Caesar. First of all, there are justice problems. People are poor and overtaxed, while the rich get richer and the powerful live lives of ease. Hey, where have we heard that before? Far worse in Rome than it is today. Um, one, one of the things that Rome did was Rome, Rome had these armies, and Rome never had enough money to pay its armies. And so after they had served their, their life, uh, their life, whatever that would be, in the army, and they would go to retire, Rome never had enough money to pay their retirement. And so they always had to appropriate lands from somewhere and give the land to the soldiers so that they could have their retirement. Um, meanwhile, in Rome, the emperor lived a life of ease and the senators had tremendous wealth. Uh, people in Rome did not have to buy food. Food was free. And uh, all the entertainment in the circus and uh, in the Colosseum, that was free. You didn't have to buy a ticket. That was provided for by Rome at tremendous expense. And all this money went to Rome. And uh, throughout the empire, it was, it was a mess financially. There were a number of times when Caesar actually stole all the property from all the senators they tried that twice. The senators were those that were wealthy. And so Caesar actually took all of the senators' property. And uh, they had this massive inflow of income. And then two or three years later, they had a complete financial disaster. Because there was no management of any of the lands and no management of any of the money and the property. And they were back in the same problem they were in before. And I believe we're in the same boat today except worse, because we found a way, and I've talked about this many times, we found a way to pass all this debt onto our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. Ridiculous. Right? We're in debt every year as a nation. This is as good as we've ever had it. People are making more money they've ever made. The government's got more money than it's ever made, and it's still not enough to pay our, we can't pay our way. So what we do is we amount this, have this huge debt, which we pass on to our grandchildren, not even our children. We're passing it on to our grandkids. And unfortunately, if the debt was going to infrastructure, that would be wonderful. The debt's not going to infrastructure. We're spending it on ourselves. Oh, don't get me started. I've already started. 
I've already started. <laughs> I said there's the justice problem of racism. Romans pay no tax. Free food, free entertainment. The non-Romans pay for it. There is the spreading of false religion. Supporting Rome is supporting emperor worship. And we could go on and on. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus' response, very wise. Show me a denarius. Whose image is on it? What does it say? It says Caesar. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. How many of you have done your taxes already? <laughs> How many have to do it yet? Oh, good. This is appropriate. Don't cheat on your taxes. <laughs> you, take out, you take out your money. What does it say on it? It says Canada on it. Give it back to Canada. <laughs> so Jesus' response, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to Caesar's what is Caesar's. And notice he says, and give to God what is God's. Uh, I'm sad to say that uh, probably, um, well, I know it's for sure, in Canada more people are honest with the government than they are with God. They give what the government is due instead of God's. The biggest problem in the world is not the taxes that go to dishonest and bad governments. The biggest problem in my life and in yours is that we don't give God what is his. And in what is his? Well, everything is his. He deserves prayer, praise, thanks. He deserves obedience and humility. He deserves our love and our faithful commitment. He deserves to have us following his son. That's what he deserves. Give to God what is God's. Verse 26, they were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public. Astonished by his answer, they became silent. Jesus, all wise, with the best answer. So verse 27, some of the Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Um, kind of like the worst case scenario. Um, when the brother died, the, sec the next brother was supposed to marry the wife so that that first brother would have children accredited to him. And uh, that lineage and uh, the inheritance would not be lost. And in this case, seven brothers. Um, if I was brother number four, I'd be going, I don't think I want to marry this woman. This is dangerous. <laughs> right? This is a, this is a black widow. Um, and especially if I'm number seven, right? Have, I have, haven't we learned our lesson yet? Like, this is going to be a disaster. I remember telling my wife that when we got married, I said, Honey, I've got three brothers. She, w she was not uh, too impressed by that. 
But notice how the question comes about. Finally, the woman died too. Now then at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Since the seven were married to her. Now, I've never really thought about this very long, but as I thought about it this week, it's quite astounding. I thought, let's say I were to die this afternoon and Joanne were to remarry. And she's mar- she marries someone who has never had a wife before. And they're married for 20 or 30 years. They die together, and they show up in heaven. And uh, here comes Joanne on some idiot, Joe. <laughs> Here's Joanne with Joe, arm in arm. And I'm going, oh, wait just a second. You're my wife. And Joe's going, well, no, she's my wife. And I thought, I was thinking, I, I don't want to be in heaven by myself. Right? I, I'm going to be lonely in heaven. <laughs> this is terrible, right? You think that way. You, we just automatically think when we go to heaven... We're going to be with our spouse. We're going to live in the same place. We're going to be partners. We're going to do everything together. That's just automatically the way we think. It's not going to be like that, which is astounding. It's kind of shocking. It's kind of even hard to figure it out. But that's their question. Like, whose wife is she going to be? It's a real, it's a real question. You can see all seven brothers saying, she's my wife, she's my wife, she's my wife. And I don't know if she has to choose between the seven. This is, okay, back to my notes. (laughs) So first of all, Sadducees. Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. Tells you right there. Sadducees were the chief priests, right? These are the upper level priesthood. They don't believe in a resurrection As they read their Bible, they only take Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. First five books of the Bible. That's all they recognize as authoritative. So they don't recognize Isaiah. Isaiah is hard on the priests. They don't recognize the minor prophets. They're hard on the priests. They don't recognize the Psalms. It's just those first five books of the Bible because they talk about the priesthood. And by the way, there's not much, not much about resurrection in the first five books of the Bible. When we look for the resurrection in the Old Testament, we look to Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the Psalms, those uh, texts, maybe Job. Those texts seem to have some things about uh, the resurrection. So here they don't believe in the resurrection. And they're coming to ask Jesus about the resurrection. And I think it's because they think the whole idea is ridiculous. And so they ask a ridiculous question. How ridiculous is the resurrection? We'll tell you how ridiculous it is. Seven brothers had the same wife. Now what's, what are they going to do in heaven? God can't figure it out. It's ridiculous. Well, Jesus answered, verse 34. Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. First three points. Number one, marriage is important today. That's verse 34. 
Point number two, there is a dividing line. Those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age. Considered worthy of taking part in that age. Are you considered worthy to take part in that age? What's going to make you worthy? Following Jesus Christ and living for him. Believing in Jesus Christ. That's what makes you worthy. Those considered worthy of taking part in the age and in that resurrection from the dead. Verse 35. No one is married after the resurrection. Yet they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They can no longer die. They are like the angels. And I wrote down, what are the implications of this? Number one, marriage is not eternal. I think you even say that in your vows. I don't know, Jeremy, are you writing your own vows? No. It used to be part of the service, till death do you part, right? You're married till death do you part. After that, you're not married anymore. It's kind of hard to figure that out. Well, what's going to happen in heaven? Well, implication number two. The physical, emotional intimacy of marriage is no longer necessary after the resurrection. It's different than today. Where physical and emotional intimacy, that's important. Necessary. No longer be necessary then. I think it's because we will have glorified bodies. We will be like Jesus Christ, and he says here, we are like the angels. You don't see angels getting married. Notice what he goes on to say. They are God's children, or they are God's sons, since they are sons of the resurrection. We are resurrection people. Now, I'll let you try and wrap your mind around not being married in heaven. It's hard to wrap your mind around that. Notice how he proves it. Jesus proves the resurrection. But in the account of the bush, when Moses went and saw the burning bush, God called out from the bush, I am that I am. Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And he does that over and over again. And by the way, it's not just Moses who calls the Lord that. God actually says that. I am the God of Abraham, and I am the God of Isaac, and I am the God of Jacob. And Jesus points out he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. For to him all are alive. And Abraham's still alive. And Isaac's still alive. And Jacob's still alive, so he can still say, I am, I am the God of Abraham. And of course, they're astounded. Here he is proving from one of the a, a text that they they all know, where God gives them the meaning of His name, Yahweh. Some of the teachers of the law responded, "Well said, teacher." No one dared to ask him any more questions, so he asks them a question. Verse forty-one. It's not in your bulletin. Here's what he asks them: How is it they say the Christ is the Son of David? David declares in the book of Psalms, 
And here's what he says. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? Here's the logic. The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord. So David is writing and he's saying, God said to my Lord. And yet David's writing about his son. Why would David refer to his son as my Lord? Because it's the Christ. The Son of God. Notice one one more thing. They began by saying, by whose authority are you doing these things? What authority have you got? Who put you in charge? Why can you do these things and why can you say these things? Where's the authority? And he comes out with this text. The Lord said, Yahweh said to my Lord, well, David is giving him the authority. He's writing about it in his word. But notice that it's God who is speaking it. God said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. The right hand of the king. What is that? Hey, that's the best seat in the house. That's the seat of preeminence. It's the seat of power. The seat of authority. Who sits beside the queen? Nobody. (laughs) Nobody sits beside the queen. There are two chairs there. (laughs) There's one throne. The queen sits on the throne. Nobody else sits beside beside the throne. Just the queen. But Jesus sits beside Yahweh. Because he has given him authority. And then he says, you just sit here until I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. And they're asking, whose authority are you doing this? And let us try to trick you so that we can kill you. And Jesus comes out and says, listen, God has made me the Lord, and those who are my enemies will be made my footstool. God's going to do it. So ultimately, this whole passage is about the Lordship of Christ. He is the Lord, the Lord of all creation, the Lord of all people. And uh, when it comes right down to it, that's the major problem in our life. Is Jesus Christ our Lord and the Lord of every area of our life? Well, that's wonderful. But a lot of times we have areas in our life we don't want to give him lordship, right? Right? Lord, I'll let you do this. I'll let you have Sunday morning. Saturday night's for me. (laughs) Or I'll say some of the things that you want me to say, but you know something? If it's going to get me in trouble, I reserve the right not to speak up. Or I want to spend my money this way, and I want to buy these things for myself. Your spirit seeming to tell me I should do something else, but no, this is my money, right? Lordship of Christ. We all, we all wrestle with that. 
but he is the Lord. And he is going to sit at the Father's right hand, and he's going to make all his enemies a footstool for his feet. That's the age that we're living in now. We've got to put Jesus Christ first. And uh, there might be some, some area in your life that you're dealing with even right now, and you know it's wrong. You refuse to change and refuse to repent. And I think he's calling you to change that, to repent, confess your sin, and give him lordship in that area. I encourage you to do it today. Our Father God, we are so thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ coming into this world. And we have been reading about that final week of his life as he turns his face toward the cross and walks toward it. And in this chapter, we see him walking towards the cross as he makes enemies who want to kill him. But Father, uh, we also see that your plan for Christ is that he will be, he is the Lord.
He is the Lord. Let's look to the Lord in prayer.